We're continuing through the Gospel of Luke. To this point in, uh, in Luke's Gospel, we've seen, um, we've seen Jesus performing miracles throughout the, the region of uh, Galilee. And so as Luke has recorded for us so far, Jesus has, uh, we've seen him drive out demons. Um, we've seen him heal Simon's mother-in-law. Uh, we've seen him cleanse a leper, heal a paralytic, heal a man uh, with a withered hand. Um, uh, among other healings that are kind of generally mentioned but not specifically noted. And, and so as a result, as we would guess would happen, Jesus has drawn attention to himself. Last week we talked about uh, the religious leaders, how, how they were taking notice of Jesus and having issue with him. They had issue with Jesus because he did things differently than they did. Uh, they felt threatened by him, what he was teaching, what he was doing. Um, but it wasn't just the religious leaders that was noting Jesus. It, it, it was the attention of regular people as well that, were, that he was drawing to himself, both Jews and Gentiles. And, and it's probably no surprise that the more miracles Jesus did, the, the more word about him spread, the more people came to see him. Now, if all, if all that Jesus had set out to do was to gather a following during his life on earth that, that became as large as it could possibly be, then he's well on his way, right? I mean, if, as long as Jesus keeps the miracles coming, then the crowds are, are surely going to continue growing. But as you might have guessed from previous knowledge that you have about Jesus, or, or just the way I'm setting up the sermon today, that uh, that wasn't Jesus' goal. The goal was not to just simply have as big of a following as possible. If, if Jesus walked the earth today, I don't think he would be the person with the most Twitter followers, the most TikTok followers. I, I just don't think he would. You know, judging by the statements that we'll hear Jesus make today, he'd have a much bigger following on Facebook if he posted cute cat pictures all the time than saying some of the things that, that we're going to hear him say. I mean, he just would. That's just how it would work. To be a follower of Jesus, to be his disciple, came with, uh, with expectations, expectations pertaining to the way a person would live their life. So, so with that being said, we're going we're gonna to see some of these things today, but, but first what we're going to do is set the stage regarding the groups of people that were there, the people that heard Jesus say the things that we're going to hear him say today. So uh, if you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 6, that's where we'll be spending our time. And we're going to start in verse 12, and, and what we will see is that there are three main groups of people who are, uh, who are there, who are among the crowd. And so, uh, well, we'll just read through these verses, and then we'll, we'll highlight these three groups. So starting in verse 12, it says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. 
And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So we got three groups here. Now, now a few quick comments to make. Uh, the first thing we see in, uh, at the beginning of that passage is Jesus commissioning 12 of his disciples and setting them apart as apostles. Now, we often think of there only being 12 men who followed Jesus as his disciples. I mean, I, that's how I, am, how I often picture it, and I think that's maybe true for, for many of us. But it's revealed to us here that there was indeed a larger group of men and women who, who followed Jesus during his ministry. And as we see in verse uh, 13, it, it's from that larger group that Jesus named 12 of them to be his apostles. Now just a, a, a distinction to make between disciple and apostle. A disciple is a follower, someone who is identified as a learner. Uh, they're, they're following maybe the, re the result of devotion on their part to the one they're following. It might be the result of just curiosity. But for whatever reason, a disciple is a follower, a learner. An apostle is a sent out one. An apostle is someone who's been commissioned as a representative and sent out. So, so a person could be a disciple on day one of their journey. All they have to do is, all, all that's required is to follow and to learn. A person can't be an apostle until they've been given authority by the one that they're representing. And presumably that's only happened, that will only happen after they've sufficiently learned and put into practice the, the ways of their teacher. Now, now, it doesn't mean that an apostle ceases to be a disciple. There's, there's always more to learn, always more to emulate when it comes to God's character especially. But those who are appointed and sent out as representatives are, are called apostles. So, so that's the difference here. Now, now the 12 apostles honestly haven't been following Jesus for very long at this point. You know, there's probably still a lot that they have to see and to learn, but in a way, Jesus is commissioning them early on, and, and, and he's speaking into their lives, maybe in a way in, in, in that he's prophesying over them the role that they are going to eventually fulfill, and we really see them fulfill in the book of Acts and beyond. But we know that there are those two groups of people. We know that there's, there's the 12 apostles. We know that there's the larger group of disciples present. But there's also a, a, a third group that, that will be present for the words that we're going to read. And you see that third group in verse 17. A great multitude of people from all Judea, Samaria, uh, Judea and Jerusalem, and then the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So in other words, there's a, a, a large group, a great multitude of Jews and Gentiles who were present either because they're curious or, or they came to be healed by this ever more famous miracle worker. So the, so the entire gathering, when you put it all together, it consisted of those who were not committed to Jesus, those who were maybe mildly committed to Jesus, 
and there were those who have been commissioned by Jesus. So it's quite the spectrum when you think about it that were present for the words that Jesus is going to say. And it was in that context that Jesus really zeroed in on his disciples and spoke the following words, which I think would have given pause to probably any person there in attendance that day. So look at the words that uh, Jesus spoke, starting in verse 20 of chapter 6. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. We'll stop there for now. You know, as, as, I, as I read those words uh, from Jesus, maybe your thoughts immediately went to the famous Sermon on the Mount spoken by Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 5 through 7. And to be sure, there are many parallels between Jesus' words that we'll look at this morning and Matthew 5 through 7. But if we assume that we don't need to study this text because we're pretty familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, then we're mistaken. Um, and, and honestly, it, it's, it's often debated whether, whether Luke is recording the same sermon as Matthew and, and just recording it a little differently, or if Jesus gave two similar sermons, but at two different times to two different crowds. There's kind of debate on, on which it was. And really, regardless of where a person lands in that discussion, we would do well to hear Jesus' words in Luke's gospel in the context in which Luke presents it. So, for example, if we look at verse 20, the first blessing, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Matthew famously writes in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? We know it. Luke also writes, Blessed are the hungry, while Matthew says, Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. So it can be tempting to take the spiritual understanding of poor and hungry from Matthew's account and impose that on what Luke is saying here. And if we do that, we're not going to come to an incorrect understanding of, of what Jesus taught. We're not going to find ourselves believing falsehood. But we will miss the specific truth that Luke has and that Luke intends for us to hear. So as Luke records Jesus' words, it is the physically poor who possess the kingdom of God. And it is the physically hungry who will be satisfied. And it is those who, are, um, who, who physically weep who will laugh. Those who are physically mistreated on the account of Jesus who will have a great reward in heaven. That was a way of thinking that 
that would have contradicted the common understanding in that culture, would have completely contradicted it. The poor, the hungry, the sad, the mistreated, they were not considered blessed in that culture. What Jesus was proclaiming here was a, was a completely new way of thinking. He, he looked at his disciples and he told them that if they were to be his followers, then they needed to think differently as well. Think differently than was common at that time. And, and complementary to the blessings are the woes. Right? Woe to the, to the rich, woe to the full, woe to those who laugh, woe to those who are thought well of. And again, that contradicted the common thinking in that culture. And so what I hear Jesus saying to those present that day is this. He says, to be my disciple, to be a learner, to be a follower of me, is to, to think and to value differently than the culture. To be my disciple is to be devoted in love to God the Father so much that you're willing to undergo hardship, ridicule in this life. I mean, the culture at that time presented riches, security, well-being, honor. Uh, th those were presented as things worth pursuing. Jesus called his disciples to leave off pursuing those things in order to pursue him pursue his kingdom instead. And even though that, that would have made no sense to the culture at that time, would not have made any sense whatsoever, but his disciples could know that, that they were blessed as a result of that. That's what Jesus is telling them there. And you think about that culture, you might say, well, our culture today isn't much different than that. Not really. Those same things are valued in our culture today. From an early age, we are we are taught that accumulating riches and security and well-being and honor brings fulfillment, brings blessing to us. That's what we're told. But if we're going to be a disciple of Jesus, we have to think differently. We have to value differently. That's what Jesus is telling us here. We're, we're called to be so devoted in our love for God that we're willing to think differently about riches and security and well-being and honor. We should see ourselves as blessed when we don't have those things because we've chosen to follow Jesus. So disciples of Jesus are, are, are devoted in their love to God above things considered of value by that culture, by our culture as well. It's part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And if those words from Jesus weren't enough to make, that cr make the crowds that day a bit uncomfortable, he went on and he said more. Look in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. 
But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So, so after talking about a disciple's love of God and how that would impact their lives, Jesus shifted and he starts talking about love for people. And what he described is a radical love, isn't it? I mean, one of the things that, that I'll do early on when I'm, when I'm preparing a sermon is write down any questions that I have as I'm reading through the text. And, and, and in my work for this sermon, I, I wrote the question, how literally am I to take these commands? And it seemed like I hadn't even finished writing the question when I realized how bad of a question that was. I mean, inherent in my question is the desire to know, where's the line, right? Where's the line in all of this? I mean, how much do I need to love people? How much do I need to be humble with people? How much do I need to serve people? And according to Jesus, his disciples ought to draw the line on the ground regarding love or humility or service and then blow past it and just keep going. I mean, drawing the line for love and then go past it by loving your enemy. Drawing the line for humility and then go past it by turning the other cheek. You know, the line for service, go past it. Give, give your tunic as well. This is why I said Jesus would not have much of a following on social media when he would post things like this. What he is calling his disciples to is not only incredibly radical, but incredibly difficult as well, isn't it? In fact, without a devoted love of God that we were talking about earlier that sees blessing in being poor and hungry and dishonored, without that, I'm not sure we ever get to the point where we love our enemy. And, and as Jesus said, I mean, anybody can love those who love them. Anyone can do good to those who do good to them. But to respond in that way to those who oppose us and those who potentially seek to harm us. I mean, that's something different altogether, isn't it? That's something radical, even. And yet, it's exactly what Jesus' disciples are called to do. So this is, this is the mark of, of my followers. And, and the picture that Jesus painted in verse uh, 38, where we stopped, that picture really jumped out at me. He said, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. Why that, that picture just jumped out at me. And it, and it got me thinking, in our, uh, in our garage at home, we've got a stack of um, empty one-gallon ice cream buckets. I mean, those things are so useful for so many things. Anybody else have a stack of ice cream buckets? Yeah, yeah. And it's great, too, because to get the empty bucket, you've got to buy ice cream and eat that, but then... But uh, anyway, so, so when I'm out working in my garden, picking green beans, um, I'm generally putting them into an ice cream bucket as I'm picking them off the plants. 
And, and as I'm doing that, if it's a good picking, the bucket fills up. Uh, if the bucket gets full before I've finished, I, I've learned that if I take the bucket and I, you know, shake it a bit, kind of work the beans, then, then they'll, they'll settle. I can get more in there. And if I've done that a couple times and I'm still picking beans and I really don't want to put the effort forth to walk 50 feet to the garage to get another one and come back, which is more common than I might admit, I'll just start piling them on top and see how, you know, see how high we can get it. But, uh, but that's the picture. I mean, that is the picture of a disciple's love for others, for enemies, as Jesus presents it here. It's not, it's not a love that just haphazardly, you know, goes into the bucket until it looks like it's full. It, it's love that fills the bucket and then shakes it around and presses it down so that there's more room, that more love can be put in there. It, it's a love that then continues by piling it up on top so that it's overflowing. I mean, that is how a disciple of Jesus loves, according to Jesus' own words. Now, it's no secret that we live in a culture that is increasingly polarized. I'm not telling you anything new there. More and more, people are divided into mutually exclusive groups, I mean, for whatever reason. As disciples of Jesus, I think there's great challenge for us in that, and I think there's great opportunity for us in that also. You know, we, we, are, we face an increasingly greater challenge to love our enemies, those who are not in the same group as we are. And again, anyone can love those in the same group. Jesus was talking about that. But to love an enemy, to, to love someone who maybe doesn't have my best interest in mind, that's the mark of a disciple. And disciples aren't called to harm their enemies. Disciples aren't called to reject their enemies or to condemn their enemies. Disciples are called to love their enemies and and the more polarized our culture gets, uh, man, the tougher I predict that will become. Uh, I think it just will. But along with that challenge, as I said, is, is a great opportunity as well, because the more polarized our culture gets, the more a disciple's love for their enemy is going to stand out. I mean, you can, again, not to get political, but you, you could take, you know, Congress, for example. Crossing the line used to be a fairly common thing. Nowadays, crossing the political line is rare, and it stands out when somebody does it. I think the love of disciples of Christ can be the same kind of thing. When we cross, not just political line, when we cross any line into another group and love, especially when the other group is supposed to be our enemies, that is going to be shocking to the world around us, and it is going to shine brightly yeah, you know, the, the darker a room gets, the brighter even a single candle looks, isn't it? And, and we can go back to, to Matthew's gospel with the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Jesus said that, uh, you know, may, may our light shine so that they may see our good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. And that'll happen as we love our enemies. I think Jesus knew that this calling to be, his, uh, to be his disciple would be a difficult one. And I think that's why he ended here by giving three warning, or a warning regarding three responses that, uh, that a person might have. 
in light of what he had said. So we're going to close by looking at these, the, the, the warning about these three responses. So look with me at verse 39. This is the, the first way a person could respond. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Yeah, we've heard that lots of times, even in wider culture, that's a, that's a saying, that's a parable that's often referenced. One response to Jesus' words here is, is to look around at everyone else and say, well, what about them? What about that person? Uh, you know, Tracy really doesn't love her enemies, Jesus, like you're, you're calling us to here. Yeah, Tyler doesn't really forgive like he's supposed to, Jesus. And and Jesus says that that response is like focusing on the speck in someone's eye when we've got, you know, that log, that plank protruding out of our own eye. You know, if, if I hear Jesus' words and, and my first thought is about someone else's response, I'm not living as a disciple. Jesus gave a warning about that kind of response here. Rather than point the finger at others, I have to to examine myself. And in light of what Jesus is saying, examine, and am, am I living as a disciple of his is called to live? So that's one response. Look around at others. Jesus highlights another response in verse 43. He says, For no good trees bear bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good, treasured, the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So, you know, maybe another response to Jesus' words is to consider them as optional. This is kind of extra credit for those who are really doing a good job as Jesus' disciple. You know, the, the, the real, the, the, the saints of the faith will be the ones that live this out. We were, we were talking about monks in our uh, Sunday school class this morning. You know, this is for those monks who just, man, I could never be them. But, but boy, they could do this kind of a thing. This is optional for everybody else. That, we could respond in that way. But the analogy of good and bad trees bearing good and bad fruit doesn't leave us that option. That's not an option given to us. Good trees will bear good fruit, Jesus says. Bad trees will bear bad fruit. And it's not that the good fruit makes the tree good. The tree was good before the fruit matured. The, the fruit is good because the tree was already good, is what Jesus is saying. So we, you know, we don't we don't live according to Jesus' words in order to become his disciple. As his true disciple, we bear good fruit, like Jesus says here. Being a barren tree isn't an option. 
Jesus doesn't present that. Good trees are going to bear good fruit. Bad trees are going to bear bad fruit. That's what he says. Disciples of Jesus will live out these things. It's just what disciples do. It's not optional extra credit for us if we want an extra jewel in our crown in heaven or, or whatever we might picture. It's not optional. It's, it's expected. And then one final response in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on, on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So a final response to Jesus' words might be to attempt to fake it. You know, th those who aren't really disciples can try to make themselves look like a disciple. And uh, I would say especially in our world today where, where a person can curate their image to a very high degree, we can, we can try to do that. I mean, we can, we can put a public persona out there that is, that is on display for everyone to see, and it might look pretty good. But, but as the story of the wise and foolish builders reminds us, the, the storms are going to come. The storms are going to come. The time will come when who we are will be clearly seen. And, and, and those who've attempted to fake it will find things crashing down around them. And those who've built their life upon Jesus and his words will find themselves anchored to a solid foundation. So uh, we can, I mean, we, we can point fingers at others. We, we can uh, think of these things as optional. We, we, we can try to fake it and try to fool those around us, but, but none of those three responses are appropriate for disciples of Jesus. And, and so in an effort to, to stay away from those three responses, I, I thought maybe it'd be good just to, to take a moment and ask ourselves a few questions pertaining to this. Uh, first question can be, uh, am I devoted in love to God in a way that places him above my own finances, my, my health, my well-being, you know, the things Jesus was talking about at the beginning there? Do I, do I, am I devoted in love to God in that way? And, and if I say yes, then what evidence in my life is there of that? Because there will be evidence in our lives as disciples of Jesus. There, there will be evidence of that. So I can ask myself the question and then I can examine how I'm living as well to see if I have that devoted love of God which a disciple is, is, is called, is expected to have. And, and then considering how we love, how we treat others, I can ask myself, who's my greatest enemy at the moment? Who is my greatest enemy at the moment? And, and not in a general sense, not in picking a group and saying that they are my enemy, but in a literal sense. Like, 
name of the person or the face of the person if we don't even know their name? Like, who is my greatest enemy at the moment? And is my love toward them, you know, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing from the side? And again, there will be evidences of that in my life if, if I'm living as a disciple of Jesus is called to live. I think those are good questions that we can, we can ask ourselves and reflect on. You know, when I think about, again, we started this morning by talking about the crowd that was there and maybe the different spots that people were in, apostles, disciples, just those who were curious, those who were there to have an illness healed and nothing else. No doubt there were some that day who heard these words and just turned around and went home and said, nah, that's, uh, that's not for me. I mean, maybe they came to be healed of an illness, not, not be told to find blessing in hunger, not be told to love their enemy. I'm sure there were some who responded that way, but, but no doubt there were also people present that day who heard Jesus' words and took them to heart and, and put them into practice and, and continued following him as, as his disciple with a greater understanding of what that meant. And, and so I, there's a challenge for us in that, to ask ourselves, what's my response going to be? What is my response going to be? What's, what's your response going to be? Are we going to live as disciples of Jesus who are fully devoted and love to God and radically loving toward people? I think if you had to sum up all of it, that, that would be it. Which, oddly enough, Jesus sums up other places, right? Loving God, loving your neighbor as yourself. may not be the easiest path to choose in this life. Um, it's not going to be the easiest path to choose in this life. I think we can confidently make that statement. But it will be worth it. Being a disciple of Jesus is worth it. God will be glorified through disciples following him in that way. People will be loved as his disciples follow him in that way. And, and I think we will be blessed as we follow him. In, that, in, in this way. That's what Jesus promised at the very beginning, that there's blessing in this. I mean, those are the, the promised outcomes for Jesus' disciples. It's not a message that's going to draw everyone to him, give him the biggest crowd, the biggest following that's ever been seen, but it is a message that will lead to those things as it's carried out. God being glorified, people being loved, his disciples being blessed. We're promised that. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's come to God in prayer. I, I think at the, at the heart of all this is a realization that this is a high calling. This is a difficult calling. This is a calling that we will not live out on our own, that we need to be empowered by God's Spirit. And so let's ask him to do that in us this morning. Heavenly Father, we, as we come to you, we think about these words uh, that were spoken. We think about how radical they are and how, how countercultural they are in many ways. And we know that in our 
in our fallenness and our sinfulness, we're never going to live this way. But as you work within us, as we give ourselves to you, I have full faith that you will lead us into this kind of life. That our love for you will be far and above anything else in our life. That we will be devoted to you far and above anything else. That, that we will be able to love enemies and not just look like it on the outside, but truly find love for them. But we need you in us. We need you working in us and through us. So God, would you do that? Know that this is a day-by-day, step-by-step following of you. So today, give us what we need to live this out today. Whatever that looks like, whatever situation we be in, that we'll, we will be in, you, you know it. You know what's coming. Give us what we need. God, I, I thank you for what happens in the world as your people live in this way. Wonderful things happen. Your kingdom shows itself clearer and clearer. That's what we desire. God, we give you the praise this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.